Um, all right, so we are in Acts chapter 10, kind of a part two uh, of, of a passage that we started last time, and really maybe after a couple weeks of, of seeing uh, really what Peter's journeys and where it's taken him. Well, last time, so two weeks ago when we met, uh, we saw that Peter had a vision. He's up on a rooftop, and he's praying. It's around lunchtime, and he has this vision where he sees this blanket full of, full of animals, um, Animals that were formerly forbidden for Jews to eat, that were on this uh, sheet, and he was instructed to eat. Now, Peter objects to this because he is told to eat these things that, for Jews, were, were unclean, um, and that they were told not to eat in the Old Testament. We went back and looked at some of those passages that, that talked about that. Um, but the voice instructed him that whatever God has deemed clean for him not to call unclean. And after this vision, after three times being pressed uh, upon this, you know, the sheet goes back up, and then he's just kind of thinking, like, well, what was that all about? Well, in the meantime, uh, three men come to knocking on his door of the place where he's staying, and they've been sent from uh, a centurion named Cornelius, and they've come for him to uh, ask him to come up to visit Cornelius. And all of a sudden, the dots start connecting because Cornelius is a centurion, meaning that he was a Gentile, um, you know, in charge of a Roman, uh, 100 men in a Roman army. And um, because of that, the Jews would have never been able to visit him, uh, would never have been able to eat a meal with him because he was not clean. He would have been considered uh, common um, and which would have made them unclean. Uh, so the way that they interact with one another um, uh, there would have been different um, barriers for them to be able to be accepted into each other's homes. So we left off uh, at that part where Peter actually goes up. He, he uh, goes up with, with a handful of, of brothers from Joppa and goes up to Caesarea, so up the coast about 30 miles uh, to another coastal town in Caesarea. So let me read uh, those verses that we had kind of finished off at. And then uh, we'll kind of open up our our minds to what we're going to talk about today. So it says in verse uh, 23, uh, he, Cornelius, invited them, or so Peter invited them in, the the, um, men that were visiting, to be his guests. And the next day he rose, Peter rose, and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. <clears throat> so this whole uh, kind of message, this two-part series, is what I've kind of titled Breaking Down Barriers. And uh, it's God working in Peter's heart and Cor- working in Cornelius' heart to kind of break down barriers to finally really break down the barrier between them and God. Um, and so <clears throat> as we kind of think about this, um, I, was, I was kind of thinking, like, what are, what are some ways that we kind of uh, put up barriers? Um, Kind of maybe a deeper question. I don't know if it's so deep, but if you can stop and think, is there anybody that you have maybe befriended in your life that you originally were like, there's no way that we'd ever be friends? 
Anyone have any, like, somebody that, you know, maybe you didn't like at first? It's always fun when I ask my high school students, like, when they met, and they usually like, oh, we met in third grade. And I, I, my first question is, did you like each other? And uh, often it's funny where a lot of them were like, no, I thought he was whatever. But, you know, over the years, when by the time they get to ninth, 10th, 11th grade, they become friends. <clears throat> um, but sometimes that happens. Again, you guys think of, like, an unlikely person that maybe you have become friends with. Do mother-in-laws count? They certainly... <laughs> oh, man, I, in my heart I felt something <laughs> saying, but my mother-in-law is here. Yes, they certainly count. They certainly count. So, uh... <laughs> you can probably think in your life, you know, some either odd, you know, odd friend that you're like, there's no way that we, I would have ever thought we would have been friends. You know, I was, my first job out of college, I was thrust into a roommate situation, and uh, the guy was from L.A., and I was from, you know, Georgia, and, um, and but anyway, and, and I, you know, it was a struggle, like, why, Lord, have you put him with me? But he's, he's, he's a really good friend. I don't know if we could live together again, you know, one of those things, but thankfully we have our own families. Um, who knows? Maybe a retirement home or something. So, uh, but, you know, that, that sometimes happens, right? In our minds, sometimes we have these, like, things that, that are... I had kind of a softer question, too, you know, because sometimes you're like, I don't know, friends. Um, is there any sort of pairing of two unlikely foods that somebody eats that you're like, that, those two things should never go together? What's that? <laughs> Ketchup and turnips. Now, does somebody, does somebody eat that you know? You eat it, okay. And people are like, never, never go together. <laughs> so, um, anything else, Eric? Is this something with oysters? Oysters in anything? Brussels sprouts in anything? Brussels sprouts in anything? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm with you, but my family loves Brussels sprouts, so... Uh, when we got married, uh, you know, actually, well, I'll go back to this other roommate. Oh, I won't bring my wife in this one. That roommate, I remember we ordered, the first time we ordered a pizza, I said, you know, let's order pizza. He's like, all right, I'll make the mac and cheese. And I was like, why? You know, and he was like, well, I don't know, Every, you know, we always have mac and cheese with pizza. And I was like, okay. Now, I don't think those two necessarily don't go together, but that, in his mind, like, every time you have pizza, like, that's what their family did. They had mac and cheese. So maybe when you got married, you know, your spouse made something, you're like, why are we having this with this? And you're like, I don't know. You know, it just goes together. Um, so sometimes those things are put together. Now, you know, why are we asking these questions? I mean, that's really kind of the thought of, of um, for Jews and Gentiles, they just didn't go together, right? They, they were kept separate. Um, that necessarily wasn't, that, that's how God intended it when he went into the promised land. And we kind of t- touched on that last time where the Jews were going in and we purposely said that the reason that they were supposed to remain distinct from the outside nations, the outside culture was because God didn't want them to adopt their, um, some of their lifestyle. Uh, they, they needed to be separate and distinct. And really the big thing was, I don't want you adopting their gods. I don't want you worshiping and straying. And, and idolatry was a huge, huge thing. So to kind of like, protect them in that way. They had distinct things that they could eat, distinct things that they, the way that they should worship, and uh, that kept them separate from the outside neighbors. But usually the food thing is a huge way that every day um, it was a way that they were to remain distinct from the surrounding cultures. And, you know, several thousand years later, uh, when we get to where we are right now, um, in Acts, you know, it had remained for Jews to keep separate and distinct, even though they are in the land that God had given them. You know, of all places, 
right? Uh, they should be accepting Gentiles in. And we looked at some other verses. We might look at some verses today where they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Well, God is breaking down barriers in their lives. And the first one, um, that first kind of passage that we read, is that both parties kind of had to humble themselves. And really, like, as we think maybe how God kind of, um, you know, drew us to him, that that was one step, um, you know, in our prideful, we-know-it-all lives, that God had to humble us in some way. For Peter, he had to have this vision where he was like, there's no way I'm going to eat this. And God's like, yes, eat it, right? And he had to have this vision three times and even kind of ponder what was that about, right? Peter had, had already you know, um, been through so many things where he's seen God's hand working in his life, but he still needed to have certain other you know, things happen for God to get him to the point where he could kind of cross that, that threshold to go and reach out to the Gentiles. And so he needed to humble himself in that way. Now, Cornelius, um, what did Cornelius do when Peter arrived to his house? What was the first thing that he did? What's that? Bow down. down. Yeah, and that actually, like, that word bow down is similar to the word that we get for for humble. Humble means to lower yourself. And Cornelius actually did that. Now, Peter said, like, don't worship me. I'm just a man. But for Cornelius, what was his position? He was a what? He was a centurion, right? And not he was a centurion, which meant that not only was he in the Roman army, who was in charge of the Jews, who was, you know, oppressing the Jews in the Jews' mind, but he was a leader in the army. And he doesn't, he gives orders, he doesn't come and for any Jew bow down to a Jew. So you can see how for Cornelius himself, like God sending a vision, you know, giving him a vision has humbled him to the point where he's like, you know, I really want to do what God is, is, I want the message that God wants from me. I'm putting away status. I'm putting away position. And you know what? He does that in front of all of the guests that are in his house. He does that in front of a crowd, which for him, you know, again, like for pride reasons, a centurion would have not done that. And so that's kind of the first step that God is, is working and doing and breaking down those barriers and humbling their heart. And you see that for, for both parties. Next, that, that uh, for God to kind of break down barriers, really, you know, whether that barrier is for somebody else, either for you to reach the, share the gospel with them, to reach them, um, or, you know, for yourself and your relationship with God, that you need to be humbled, and then you have to have an ear to hear God speak. And that's kind of the second thing that we see. So verse 30, it's kind of where we pick up our part two. It says, Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. <clears throat> so really, you know, this is not new ground. He's just repeating some of the things that, you know, we had already uncovered early on in chapter 10. The vision, he just kind of repeats that. This is what happened to me. He adds some, uh, you know, additional information that there was an angel standing in his house wearing bright clothing. You know, kind of give us sometimes uh, when we have those visuals of like angels, they're usually wearing bright clothing. Cornelius says the same thing. And it's the visions that you'll see in Revelation uh, when you typically see... Um, uh, angels, or you see even, even those that are in the, the throne room of God are wearing, wearing those kind of, those kind of clothing. And he was having a vision and praying, 
um, at the time. It just repeats the same thing that, that he heard, that God says, I've heard the things that you've given, the money that you've given to the poor, um, your prayers that you have given to me. So we know that Cornelius is a God-fearing man, and that's what the description was earlier in chapter 10. <clears throat> and because God has orchestrated all these events, once sent, a, sent an angel to give him this message to go get Simon. And now Simon is back here in front of him. I mean, it just confirms to him that what God sent him to do, they were able to locate him exactly as God had said, and now he's here. So he must be sent from God, because this angel is from God. And so the message that he's about to give certainly is from God. He invited all his friends over to come here. And now we're going to get a message from God. And so their ears are open, ready to hear what God says to them. And so the third thing, kind of breaking down the barriers, is that a clear gospel message is spoken. And this is where Peter now gets to open up his mouth. Um, you know, often with Peter opening up his mouth, a lot of times early on in his life, when he opened up his mouth, he should have inserted his foot, right? You know, because... Uh, uh, he said some things that were brash and bold. But now in Acts, whenever we see Peter open up his mouth, it's usually right to preach boldness to those uh, that are anticipating what God has said. So verse 34 says, So Peter opened up his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All right, well, Peter early on says that God shows no partiality. What does it mean to show no partiality? All men are equal in God's eyes. Okay, all men are, are equal in God's eyes. Okay, in what particular way? In the love of God's eyes. In the love of God's eyes, okay. Okay. Um, would you say that the Jews and the Gentiles are equal in God's eyes? Are they the same in God's eyes? Not the same. Not the same, okay. So in what way would you say that they're equal? They're equally in need of redemption. They're equally in need of redemption, right? So God is not partial in the sense of who he is extending his hand out to. Um, and we'll, we'll circle back to some of, the, some of those things. So uh, if you want to, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we'll look at a couple, a short passage. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 is kind of where we see uh, Peter echoing some of the words of God not being partial.
So chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Okay, so right away, just, you know, what, what do I require of you? So far, it's obedience and to love God wholeheartedly. Verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. <clears throat> Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear, He is your praise, He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven." And we kind of see twofold in some of this, the, you know, the distinction here. That God has said, you know, I have made a distinction between you, right? I've chosen you as my nation, but for you as a nation, I'm commanding you to do these things. But I also want you, right? Who does he say? To love. Verse 19. What's that? The sojourner, right? And so, you know, you could, you could make a point that really Cornelius is a sojourner in the land uh, of where he is at. And they're, those that are coming inside the land, the Jews are supposed to be open to, supposed to be hospitable to, and supposed to be, where we'll see a little bit later, a light to those that are outside God's initial plan of redemption, which is to give his message of hope to this one nation so then that they could be a light to others, to feed that to the rest of the world. But so far, the Jews, um, or many of the Jews, have kind of rejected that. And, so, and a lot of these things of the commands that came at the beginning, I want you to be obedient to the things that I give you. Sometimes they held so tightly onto those commands that they then neglected the command to love the sojourner. He's like, remember, you were sojourners in Egypt, and I loved you when you were in Egypt. And so I want you to reciprocate that in the same way. And so, um, if, if you want to turn real quick to Isaiah 42, remember now, well, Isaiah 42, um, we, can, we can start in verse 1. Uh, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth, forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Who's this talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? These verses are often talked about Jesus, about how he is gentle with, uh, with others. Thus says the Lord, uh, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. 
Remember, and again, last time we looked at some of those verses that often when God kind of wanted to prove like, hey, who, who made the rules here, right? I made the earth. I made everything in it. So if you want to say like, and we specifically talked about when Peter objected to eating, God was like, I made the rules in the first place, right? And so uh, we, we talked about Job had the same thing when he kind of was like kind of pushed back against some of the things, you know, like, why, God, are you doing this? He went back to the whole fact that like, I made this whole, this whole place. Um, I make the rules and I'm just kind of now explaining to you how, you know, I want things, uh, you know, I, I want you, you to interpret the things that I'm, I'm telling you. So verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So talking right there in the context of Jesus, that Jesus right is there as a sign of the covenant, uh, this new covenant, these new things that God is doing, and he's supposed to be that light to the surrounding nations. So for Jews, everybody that is outside the Jewish nation are Gentiles. And here we are, Peter, being a Jew, inside the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, sharing with him this Messiah that was promised to them, but is also promised to the entire world. And so for Peter, right, you know, it's, it's, he's, as he's kind of like coming to grips with these things, he's like, I, now I see what God is doing um, for uh, you know, for in, in this plan that he's just, again, being obedient to uh, doing what God desires, you know, of him. Remember we said a couple weeks ago that, you know, he was uh, traveling uh, to one town and then he healed somebody and so then he was asked to come to another town and while he's there, then he goes to Caesarea. And so Peter's just kind of following as the Spirit leads him and now he's, he's in the house of Cornelius. So uh, verse 37, back in uh, chapter 10 of Acts, Peter indicates that, uh, as he's kind of about to, to proclaim the message of Jesus, what does Peter say that Cornelius and everybody in the household already knew? What does it say in verses 37? Okay. Yeah, so you know what happened throughout all Judea, specifically, you know, you know about Jesus, right? He comes there already like, you already, you know, you've come to ask me to come here, but you already know everything that I'm about to tell you. Um, and so this isn't new information for them, but they're, they're going to be hearing and responding in, uh, in a new way. Well, why is it that Peter, why, why does Peter presume that Cornelius already knew this? And those in the household already knew about Jesus. Why is that a good presumption? Okay. Whose actions? Cornelius. Cornelius? Okay. So, what's that? Okay, so he's a, he was a Roman soldier. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Is that one, it could be, in general, that Jesus you know, walked and preached and, and healed all up, up and down that area. Um, and so he could pre, be presupposing that you guys already know. I mean, it's, you know, Israel's not a big place, and specifically Judea and Galilee and the areas that Peter is going to is not a big place. And so after his travels, he might have encountered those that have already knew. There's also a couple specific incidents where Jesus had personal interaction with other centurions. Um, there weren't that many centurions, 
Um, and so uh, those that were in charge of 100, there were 60 of them. And so for those that to be inside of Israel, we already know of two specific incidents that a centurion had with Jesus himself. And so I'll, let's turn to two of them real quick. One is in Luke chapter 7. And we'll just go real quick of what the... So verse 1, after he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Okay, this is up in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. And so again, this guy is a centurion who had a good reputation with the Jews, just like Cornelius uh, did. He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been uh, sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Okay, so again... Uh, for the centurions, right, they would have been a part of, <clears throat> likely a part of the same cohort. He said, remember that Cornelius was a part of the Italian cohort, um, which was a group of uh, the, the legions or the, the, the centuries. So these centurions would have been, um, likely have been in, uh, commingled and have interaction with each other. And this guy has similar traits as Cornelius. Um, Jesus healed this guy's servant. Uh, if you turn to Mark 15, that we have another account of a centurion and <clears throat> Jesus. And uh, we'll go down to verse um, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So the centurion was stationed there in Jerusalem and makes this proclamation. We later see that it was the centurion that was asked to confirm that Jesus had indeed um, died, and he had to. He told the Jews, yes, that he did indeed die. So the centurion, this centurion, had a specific role there as well. So not only was Jesus uh, what he did for the three years um, in his ministry, all throughout the, that area, probably been widely known to most of the people in that area. Um, but specifically, Jesus had a couple interactions with centurions, which Cornelius would have been in a similar um, station with, at least as far as, uh, you know, 
what his, what his job was and the people that he would have interacted with. And so um, now we see a, th- a third centurion uh, that is hearing this message about Christ. What was the content of Peter's gospel message? So if you look at, at the things that Peter said, right, he says, you already know these things, but let me just tell you again. And he kind of, it's interesting that he specifically talks about the fact that Jesus came to the Jews, right? Again, he's in, he's in a Gentile home, but he says, you know, Jesus came here, right, um, that he was witnesses for us, that he did these things for us, and it was us that actually hung him on the tree. So he's, he's kind of, you know, in his language, um, keeping some of the distinction between who Jesus was sent initially for and what, was, what were the things that he confirmed about Jesus. So what, what was the first thing? Is that uh, Jesus what? He was, verse 38, God anointed him and he was full of the Holy Spirit and with power. So what are some of the things that Jesus did? What's that? Yeah. So he healed others, right? It says he went about doing good. What else did he do? Or what, what, what were things about that were described about Jesus? What's that? That Peter's describing here, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm saying this in a way that it's instructive to see what are the things that content-wise Peter, you know, when he is like, somebody's asking, well, tell us about, it's like, remember, I'm giving you an open platform to tell us all you can. And so what are the things that Peter says? First, he says, Peter came and dem- or, sorry, Jesus came and demonstrated uh, things by healing and doing good. What else did he do? Or what, what else does he describe about Jesus? Okay, okay. What's that? Okay, so yeah, he, he uh, helped those, healed all those, oppressed for the devil, right? Um, what do they do to Jesus? That Jesus what? In verse, the end of 39? They put him to death, right? So he died by crucifixion, that he was crucified. Uh, what happened to Jesus? Verse 40. Raised him on the third day, right? Third day is exactly what Jesus had prophesied. If you go back to, to Jonah, you know, that's uh, some parallels there as well. Um, and not only that, he was crucified, but then he what? End of 40? He appeared, he appeared right? And he appeared... Okay. Right? Peter was a witness of that. Uh, that. There were many who had seen him do those things, uh, that were witnesses of those things. And then, yeah, that he commanded us to preach, um, <clears throat> preach that, you know, testify to be witnesses of who Jesus is. And that Jesus will come back and that he will do what? It doesn't say he comes back, but that Jesus has been appointed to what? Be a judge the living and the dead. We're going to see that, you know, the, that, that language also seen when, when Paul goes to the Gentiles, and he'll say similar things, that he is a judge of all men. <clears throat> and that the prophets bear witness, so it's not just me saying this, it's not just Jesus, but the prophets, their prophets, the Jewish prophets, were the one who said those things, but that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his 
name. So there are several things that are, uh, you know, just kind of helpful as we see, like, what did Peter say in his gospel, you know, in his, in his message of salvation? It wasn't very long. It was short. Um, but that Jesus came, right? That he did these signs, that he was a historical figure. I mean, he didn't need to say that, but you know, maybe sometimes for, for people that we witness to today, that Jesus was actually alive, that people witnessed these things. There is a historical account of who Jesus was. And not only did he do those things, but he died, right? He was buried. He was in the ground that a centurion himself even confirmed these things, um, and that he rose from the dead. And it wasn't just one person, it was many people who saw those things. And it was a period not for just one day, but it was 40 days. I and mean, we covered that all at the beginning of Acts, um, of the things that Jesus had done. But the main thing is, is that, that Jesus had done all those things, but he did those things for a purpose, right? Because God is going to judge everybody based on their sins, about how they live their lives. And everyone's going to fall short of that standard that God has, ha- has, has for them, but Jesus forgives sins to those who believe in Him. And so that's the clear message that Peter gives to his audience. Well, how do they respond? And so we see a clear sign of God's work. Um, a clear sign of God's work in breaking down these barriers. Verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard, uh, sorry, heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. So what was the sign that we see here? That the, uh, the sign of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues. Now we've seen, we've seen the speaking of tongues uh, occur in other situations. There's going to be one more time that we're going to see speaking in tongues, but just to kind of reiterate the fact that um, when we see speaking in tongues, it's not when anyone accepts Jesus. Um, we're going to see a lot of instances where tongues is never even mentioned. Um, but when Jesus is proclaimed and accepted by a new group of people, remember Jesus said in the beginning of Acts, He said, I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And so the first group that spoke in tongues was who? Who was the first people that received the gift of the Holy Spirit? What's that? At Pentecost, right? So it was those who were, who were di- the, his disciples received this sign of the Holy Spirit that they were speaking in tongues and that people were kind of like, why are you speaking in tongues? And then Peter was able to preach the message and then 3,000 people were added to the church that day. So that was the first instance that we saw. You guys remember the second instance? What's that? Philip, true, yes. Philip, when he goes to uh, Samaria, right? And he goes to the Samaritans. And we say that Samaritans, by some, were seen as kind of a distinct people group. I mean, they were Jews, but they weren't like full Jews, right? Uh, we kind of talked about the history of, of that. And so when uh, Peter and John actually came and laid hands on them, and then the gift of, they had already received Christ, but then they uh, are speaking in tongues, and so now it's an outward sign for everybody that now... Uh, 
that others can outside confirm, yes, that, that the gift of the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. And now we see with the Gentiles, this is happening. Now, what was the reaction of those? It says that those that came with Peter, because Peter didn't come alone, and later we'll see next week that six of them came with, came with him, six brothers come with him. Uh, wh- how, how did they react? It says that they were what? They were amazed. They were like, whoa, <laughs> God has like chosen them. Like, we didn't even think that was going to happen, right? Because they, you know, the whole language about light to the nations, you know, I don't think they just, they had so long, again, put up these barriers and walls between them and the Gentiles that, like, there was no way that they were going to break through. They were not going to let the Gentiles break through, and they weren't going to reach out the other way. God had to separate this kind of wall that they had kept between them. And this is, you know, Peter going in and being, by being prompted by God to do these things and preach the message. And God says, you know what? Yep, I'm confirming these things to you. Yeah. This is still, this is beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later when Paul actually makes his way to Galatia. But, you know, definitely those things. So, uh, so what's being brought up is that when, uh, it, it says in, in uh, the book of Galatians that when Paul uh, went to, um, what's that? Antioch. So, yeah, in Antioch. Um, yeah, and we actually will, anyway, so we'll get to Antioch actually next week. But um, when... Uh, Paul went there and was, was um, with the other believers. Peter was, was with those. It was going to be mi- a mixture of Jews and Gentiles there. There is a, we'll, we'll get to them next week, um, there's a, a party of the circumcision. Those that are Jews that are circumcised that have become Christians, they start to be referred to as the party of the circumcision. Um, and we'll talk about that for those distinct reasons, and I'll kind of get to that in just a, just a second. Um, that when they came up to visit, Peter actually withdrew from eating with uh, the Gentile believers. Um, and so Paul had to rebuke him for those things. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit later. But chronologically, this does happen before, uh, before that event. Um, which, is, you know, which is great to show that you know, Peter still had his foibles, right? You know, the things that he's still working on. So we, sometimes I find comfort in Peter, you know, like, well, he messed up too. Um, not that he's our standard, right? Christ is our standard, but... He was the first... <laughs> it's another topic. Um, yeah. So, uh, but they're amazed at what is happening. And I think they're all kind of coming to grips with the thing, you know, like, all right, Peter, we'll go with you. We hear you have this vision. We'll see what happens. And then it's confirmation for them that the Spirit is poured out on them. And so what did Peter see fit to do? Like it was confirming for him, you know, Cornelius had been spoken of, like he gave alms, he prayed to God. God even said, I hear your prayers. And so from what we can understand is that, um, you know, he was a child of God in the sense that God heard, heard him. He just needed Jesus to kind of, you know, uh, be that final piece of the puzzle whom he had already heard about. But then God is now confirming that, yes, he is one of mine by pouring out his spirit upon them. And so when Peter sees this, he's like, well, he must be one of God's. He must be now part of this church that is spreading um, and that Peter was given the keys to, right? <laughs> um, 
Uh, but that's on the message of Jesus. Yeah, another story. So, um, so what did Peter see fit to do with them? Baptize them, right? He, and he actually kind of says it like, does anyone see like, that we shouldn't baptize them? And everyone's like, no. I mean, nobody objected. And so they baptize them. This is after they had received the Spirit, right? Um, because from this point, yeah, we don't know that they actually, you know, that, God, that they are followers of Christ. And at this point, we would assume that they are not followers of Christ. But after, after he gives the message that, that now that uh, they have kind of gotten that final peace, they respond to that, they start speaking in tongues in that they are, um, then should be baptized, right? Because you remember when, the people cried out in chapter 2. It was like, what, should, what do we need to do about being saved? Because Peter's message to them was a lot longer because it was to the Jews and it was very um, heavy. Like, you crucified Jesus. You did those things. And they were like, well, what do we need to be, do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. And so we, we have this kind of logical conclusion that they have repented and that Peter now says, so should we baptize them now? And that uh, they go ahead and do that. So he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, just like Jesus had commanded him to go out and to baptize others in his name, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so then they said, you know, can you remain with us for a few days? Yes. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, no, I'm glad you're, you're I didn't, I wasn't going to talk about that, but Mm-hmm. That God was going to move from them with the gospel out to others. So you see it working exactly the way he said it would. Yes. There in, in Acts 10. Yeah, and because there is that, that, that I don't know, unclarity that sometimes, because remember when we, we looked at, um, for those that heard them, or was here when we went through this, when Philip uh, preached to the, the Samaritans and that they um, had responded to the gospel. Um, that, you know, there's that like, well, did they need to speak in tongues to then actually be saved? You know, was that the gift of the Holy Spirit? But no, that the gift of the Holy Spirit we talked about was a sign to confirm, yeah, like these now, they're now a part of us. And we should not now make distinctions between them, whom we've made distinctions for so long. And remember, God is kind of opening it up. The first issue that we saw within the church was between the the, the uh the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews, right? Remember in Acts chapter 6, and we had a, the widows were being neglected, and so there was kind of this distinction in the early church that the apostles need to kind of like take care of. And then it kind of moves out to the, the Samaritans, and then it moves out now to the Gentiles. And so um, there's only going to be one more sign, uh, and it's kind of a, a unique um, reason for that, and we'll explain when we get to there. There's only going to be one more sign of uh, utterance of speaking in tongues for a new people group. Um, with these things. Now, I, I kind of titled this uh, that this kind of fourth way of breaking down those barriers, you know, because a lot of times we, you know, we make barriers with, even within the church sometimes. We're like, well, they worship that way. Um, and so we make those barriers between them. But really, what is, what is a clear sign that a person is a believer? One could be their profession, but what's the other thing that we're supposed to judge, judge a person by? 
What's that? Is the fruit. Yeah. So that would the, 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 so for us today, we would say a clear sign of God's work in a person's life, for them right here, was instant and speaking in tongues. And that was like, okay, stay with us a few days, Peter, go on to your next thing. Um, and then we're going to see that it actually then spreads, like people are going to hear about this. We'll see this next week, that, that by the time Peter makes his way back to Jerusalem, others have already heard what happened. Uh, we'll talk about the reasons why uh, when we get to that next week. Um, but it's a clear sign for others. Now, for us, our clear sign is people's actions, right? Their continual, habitual uh, obedience to, um, to God and to the fruit that they produce. And that's how we know that God's message, right, has, has, it was a seed that was implanted in somebody's heart. So what's kind of the big picture? I mean, there's a lot, you know, that, that goes on with, you know, with what is going on in this, this chapter. I mean, it is a kind of a landmark chapter. We have several of these that we've seen. It's a landmark chapter because most of us are, are Gentiles, right, that would have been excluded um, from the message of salvation. But we see here kind of that first step uh, that God, you know, brings together in order for those things to happen. <clears throat> what was, do you guys remember what the thing that kept... Cornelius from being accepted as a Jew. He said that, that Cornelius was a God-fearing man, but I mentioned one thing that scholars kind of said that likely believe that he was not a full-fledged uh, proselyte, that he was not considered Jewish, that he was not circumcised. Okay, so we don't, you know, there's nothing in the text that says this, but most scholars say, well, the reason that they, did, they, they said he was just a God-fearing man and had all these descriptions about him, that he probably followed the, you know, the Old Testament God, uh, spoken of in the Torah, but not accepted by the community, very respected, but he was likely didn't go for that full, the final step of being circumcised. The verses that we went back to in Deuteronomy, right? God said, I want you to circumcise your heart, right? And that was the whole thing about the new covenant, that a person, while uh, circumcision was a specific sign uh, that, you know, and a step in um, showing your allegiance to God uh, for males that, you know, and really it was not something that they did personally unless they were converted. They, it was done to them when they were, you know, when they were, were babies, when they were on the eighth day that they were to be circumcised. But that was kind of one thing that kept Cornelius from being fully accepted was circumcision. We'll put a kind of a pause on that because we're going to see this issue come up a little bit later. What was the thing that... Um, you know, uh, Peter said kept him from, like, that, that made him think things were unclean or people were unclean was by what? What was the vision that he had? What they ate, okay? So one is a one-time sign that was circumcision that kept a barrier between Gentiles and Jews. And again, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But the second thing was something that was a daily habitual thing that, that they did that kept people separated from each other. Uh, there was a, was a really interesting website called Judaism 101. And there's some really th- interesting things from a Jewish perspective about why Jews kind of do what they do. And one of them is about eating kosher. And so some, you know, it's, he kind of addresses the whole issue about health reasons, but, but says it probably wasn't for health reasons. And so again, this is a Jew, a Jew writing, you know, in this website says, the short answer as to why Jews observe these laws is because the Torah says so. The Torah does not specify any reason for these laws, 
And for a Torah-observant traditional Jew, there's no need for any other reason. Some have suggested that the laws of kashrut, which is kosher, fall into the category of shukim laws, uh, for which there is no reason. We show our obedience to God by following these laws, even though we do not know the reason. Others, however, have tried to ascertain God's reason for imposing these laws. In his book, To Be a Jew... Rabbi Chaim Halevi Donin suggests that the dietary laws are designed to, as a call to holiness. The ability to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, pure and defiled, the sacred and the profane, is very important to Judaism. Imposing rules on what you can and cannot eat ingrains that kind of self-control, requiring us to learn to control even our most basic, primal instincts. Donin also points out that the laws of kashrut elevate the simple act of eating into a religious ritual. The Jewish dinner table is often compared to the temple altar in rabbinic literature. A Jew who observes the laws of kashrut cannot eat a meal without being reminded of the fact that he is a Jew. In the next section, he answers, how difficult is it to keep kosher? And he says, people who do not keep kosher often tell me how difficult it is. Actually, keeping kosher is not particularly difficult in and of itself. What makes it difficult to keep kosher is the fact that the rest of the world does not do so. And so you hear, have like a Jew that's speaking in today's terms of why these laws were even enacted. And it was to keep, you know, keep themselves separate. But it was a reminder of this idea about holiness. But then God says, you know what? Um, it's not what goes into your mouth, and Je- you know, Jesus had said this, and we looked at those verses, that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. And God is saying, with Christ, with this Messiah, which these Jews have missed, that it is through Christ that you are cleansed, that you can become holy, um, uh, justified before God, but even... You can be ritualistically, habitually become more holy by following the example of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And it was to keep them distinct. And this, this guy even says that. How hard is it to keep kosher? It's pretty hard, especially when you know, the rest of the world doesn't keep kosher. Uh, my daughter has a friend that, um, I think her dad is Jewish, and she came over and she said, you know, can I, are these snacks kosher? I'm like, I don't know, you know, so I'm like Googling these like fruit snacks, you know, to see whether they're kosher. And I'm like, I don't know, the Scooby-Doo ones aren't kosher, I guess, you know, because they're just not not noticed. So she's like, okay, well, I can't eat it. And so you kind of, you know, it was kind of like a reminder for her, like, I can't eat that because there are these barriers that keep me from eating those things. But the Jews at this time had kept the people away, not just, you know, by keeping these dietary laws, and God is kind of removing those things. So as we stop and think, even in our own lives, what are things that keep us, you know, at a distance from others? There are things in our own lives that we can apply this to that keep us from sharing the gospel with certain people, uh, that keep us from maybe accepting other believers. Um, And there's a lot of different ways that we can apply these things. But God really says, you know what? The only way that, you know, I don't show partiality to anyone Everybody needs the gospel, and I will show you that I will break down these barriers so that they may hear this message of salvation. All right, we'll pause here. Is there uh, any final questions or comments?